Father, we come before you today and we lift up Damar. We ask that you'd bring healing to him once again. We ask, Father, that in this service, that the work that you want to do, that you would do it in our hearts and our minds today. We pray that there would be nothing that would get in the way. And the power of who you are, Lord Jesus, the authority of your name, we pray that your mighty work would be done in our hearts today, that your word would go out, would transform lives, not just here, but in the world around us. I pray that the gospel will be taught and preached faithfully without addition or omission. We pray, Father, that you'd raise up the church, that you'd raise up the body of Christ. Enable us, Lord, I pray, to be the salt and light of the world around us. We ask, Father, that that would begin with us as individuals. We commit our lives to you, and I ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me as we open your word, Lord. May our hearts open to you and hear you speak to us today. In Jesus' strong name, and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 We were walking through the Ten Commandments. We come to a commandment that you would think, as you read it, needs the least amount of explanation of them all. It's a commandment that most of us know famously in the words of King James Version. It says, Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. Now, most of you are thinking, good, got it. We can skip that one. We can move on. I mean, most of us don't struggle with the urge to kill very often. <laughs> that is until the IRS demands more money from us or we find ourselves growing fangs, standing in line, waiting longer than we think we should. But for the most part, we're pretty good. Reminds me of a famous attorney's statement, Clarence Darrow, who said it this way in his autobiography, he said, I haven't killed anybody, but I've read a whole lot of obituaries with great pleasure. <laughs> According to the American Psychological Association, by the time an average child reaches sixth grade, they have already witnessed more than 8,000 murders on television. They have watched over 100,000 acts of violence on television. We live in an increasingly violent society. Every 22 minutes, probably less. Somebody in America is stabbed, they're shot, they're beaten, they're strangled to death. The highest homicide in the rate in the world is in America. Our children die more from violence today than they do from illness. So when you read this commandment up front, God says, do not kill, it seems as though it doesn't need much explaining. But in truth, this is one of the least understood commandments. For starters, is it thou shalt not kill or is it thou shalt not murder? Which one is it? Depending on which translation you're reading, if you come from the King James translation, it says thou shalt not kill. But if you open up the New American Standard or even the New King James Version or RSV or ESV, another translation, it says thou shalt not murder. Now, there's a vast difference, isn't there, between murder and kill. Huge difference. I mean, when a deer hunter comes home from a successful hunt, he says, I didn't murder a deer today, did I? No, he says, I killed a deer. You don't murder a fly, you kill a fly. There's a world of difference between those two words, isn't there? 
So which word is it that God intends? Is it kill or is it murder? Well, the Hebrew word here that God uses is not the typical word for kill, which is harag, but instead a very unique word, a very select word, ratzak, murder. The very root of this word means to strike or to slay. There are at least eight different words God could have chosen to use to explain what he was saying here, but he chose one word that is not related to military or related to the legal system or related to killing animals. It is a word specifically related to taking unlawfully somebody's life. So you might ask, well, why then does the King James Version have thou shalt not kill? Well, over 400 years ago, the word kill and synonymous were, or kill and murder were synonymous. People didn't have to wrestle what they meant. They understood that the very next chapter of Exodus, chapter 21, God sanctions killing in war. He sanctions the death penalty. He sanctions self-defense. They understood from the context that God meant murder. One author says it well. He says, if the Ten Commandments forbade killing, we would all have to be vegetarians. And killing animals would be prohibited. We'd all have to be pacifists since the world, or since we could not even kill in self-defense. I have to tell you, I am not a vegetarian. And I would have a hard time with that. So God is saying in this word, it is unlawful, it is immoral to take the life of another human being. Now, why is that so important? Because you, every single one of us here, were uniquely made in the very image of God himself. The same God who created the universe to display his unrivaled and incomparable glory created you in his eternal image. And God made you to share his divine life. You see, to unlawfully take a life of another human being is synonymous to murdering the very image of God. And God does not take that lightly. Every human being, no matter who they are, matters to God. C.S. Lewis so well said, there are no ordinary people. You've never met a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal. They're temporal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But immortals, those who are made in the image of God, whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, these, these are eternal beings. So how does God want us to apply this command? What does he want us to understand from it that is so significant? Let me give you three truths that God wants us to understand from this commandment that is so important. God wants us to understand, first of all, that life, all of life, comes from God. That the origin of life comes from God. Would you say that with me? The origin of life comes from God. Say that one more time. The origin of life comes from God. It doesn't come from anywhere else. And God wants you to know that your physical life, your spiritual life, and your eternal life come from Him. Nowhere else. So your physical life comes from God. The very fact that you can see right now and you can hear is proof that God has given you physical life. The Bible says, in fact, that God formed man from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed life into him. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God made man from the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. 
In other words, the Bible says this, you did not evolve from monkeys. It's not from goo to you by way of the zoo. God made you. Years ago, my brother was visiting me. I gave him a book by a law professor, Philip E. Johnson, called Darwin on Trial. After he read that book, he was angry. He was angry because for the first time he understood that he had been deceived all those years that evolution was in fact not true. It was false, a huge lie. He was angry because he had been educated in a public school system and made a monkey of because he had been taught monkey mythology. He realized that no evolutionist, no matter how many degrees they have after their name, no matter how intelligent they are, none of them can explain the origin of life. All life comes from God. George Wald, who was a prominent evolutionist, Harvard University biochemist, Nobel laureate, wrote this back in 1954. When it comes to the origin of life, there are only two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved over 100 years ago by Louis Pasteur. But that leads us only to one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on the philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. Evolutionists know that they are lying. They know that they cannot explain the origin of life. They know that evolution is a farce. But you see, at the heart of evolutionists, at the heart of evolution, is a desire to breach the sixth commandment and murder God himself. You see, many don't want you to believe that you're made in the image of God. They don't want you to believe that your life came from him. They want you to believe that your life has no value. You have no purpose, no meaning. There is no eternity. When you die, that's it. The candle is blown out. The cessation of life, you, don't, you no longer exist. That's what they want you to believe. But when you realize that we are made in the image of God, in God's incomparable image, it literally rips away the veneer of abortion. Because you realize from the point of conception, that little baby is a human being made in the image of God. It rips away the veneer of suicide. You do not have the right to take your own life. It rips away the veneer of physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, or mercy killing. When a doctor provides physician-assisted suicide, he is literally becoming an accessory to self-murder of a patient. Dr. Philip Riken, who is the president of Wheaton College, said it so well. He said, voluntary euthanasia almost always becomes involuntary. There has been, there, this has been the experience in the Netherlands where thousands of medical patients are killed every year. What is especially frightening is that most of the requests for the so-called mercy killings are done not from the patients themselves, but from families 
who frankly are trying to get rid of them. God has not given you, he's not given me, the authority to take our own lives or to take somebody else's life out of sympathy. It rips the veneer off of infanticide. Just recently I was reading ACLJ, American Center for Law and Justice, that there was in Maryland legislature a bill that was brought to the Senate, Bill 669, also known as Pregnant Persons Freedom Act 2022, that would legitimize infanticide up to 28 days after birth. In other words, this bill went so far to say this, that if a baby was born and within that 28-day window, the mother did not want the baby and decided to abandon the baby, the baby died and the police found this baby and cited the mother for murder, the mom could turn around and sue the police department. God says all life begins with him and that he is Lord of life. And the reason he gave the sixth commandment is to remind us that life is a precious gift from God and that we must protect it from those who would carelessly devalue it. Your physical life comes from God. Second, your spiritual life comes from God. The Bible says that you were born physically alive but spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, Once you were dead... Because of your disobedience and your many sins, you were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And the only way, the Bible says, you can become spiritually alive is by placing your trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins. That's the only way. There is no other. Jesus plainly said it. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus did not say there are many ways. He did not say there's more than one truth. He did not say there's more than one life. He is very exclusive. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. There is no other way. Paul goes on to say this, so it is also written that the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit that your spiritual life can come and only can come from Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that when we come to Christ, God puts his Holy Spirit in us. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. We are spiritually born again when we trust Jesus Christ. You see, the moment you turn from your sin, the moment you recognize, God, I am a fallen human being. There are things in my life I'm ashamed of. I know that I've done wrong. I'm asking you to forgive me of those things by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The moment I do that, God says, I am going to be spiritually born. I become a child of God just like we sang. And I'm spiritually made new. I'm spiritually born again. Paul says this, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. And behold, new things have come. Now all, things are, now all these things are from God. When God says that you're a new creation, the word there that Paul uses means that you're a new species that never existed prior that God so makes you new that you are brand new completely. You're an entirely new life. 
When you trust Christ, you're not simply joining some self-improvement plan. You're not accepting a certain set of beliefs or even a code of conduct. The Bible says you're a new creation, a child of God, made alive forever by Christ. So that your physical life comes from God and your spiritual life comes from God. Would you say that again with me? All life finds its origin in God. All life finds its origin in God. Don't let anybody make a monk of you. Your life comes from God, your physical life and your spiritual life. But also your eternal life comes from him. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, the kind of life that Jesus is talking about that is eternal life is, just, is not just quantitative, it's qualitative as well. It's, just, it's not just quantitative, it's qualitative as well. In other words, the Bible says this, because you are made in the image of God, you will live forever. What determines your eternity is what you do with Jesus Christ. And the Bible says you'll live in one of two places forever. You'll either live in heaven or you'll live in hell. And what we need to understand about hell is that hell, quantitatively, is like heaven. It's forever. In fact, Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else. And when he spoke about hell, he said it was a place of eternal punishment where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Quantitatively, it is the same duration as heaven. It is forever. And the only reason a person finds themselves in hell is because they've rejected the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. God never sends anybody to hell. It's that they choose to reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. But the Bible says this, the moment we trust Christ, our lives are radically and eternally changed. Our eternal destination changes forever as well. Hell is a place where there is no hope. Hell is a place where there is eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. I listened to a fleeing Ukrainian woman who sobbed out these words as she was fleeing from this war-torn nation. She said, our lives are destroyed forever. And there is no hope. The only person who can make that statement truly is the person who's in hell. The good news is today is the gospel is going across Ukraine. And there are many who are turning to Christ. And we need to pray that God uses this war to bring people to their knees to trust Jesus Christ. That's the only good that comes out of this. But hell is a real place, and so is heaven. Jesus offers a different quality of life. He offers heaven. It is a place where there is no more war. There is no more fear. There is no more hopelessness, no more death, no more separation, no more sorrow. Jesus said, I give eternal life to them. That is not just quantitative, it is qualitative. It's the kind of life he offers. And they will never perish, and no one 
will snatch them out of my hand. Now, I know there are those who like to say, well, I could jump. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He is saying it is an absolute and ultimate impossibility that when he gives you his eternal life that you can ever lose it because it is a gift that he has given to you. Peter tells us that our eternal life, in fact, is kept in heaven for us. You see, the truth is this. If I could lose my eternal life, I probably would because you know why? I'd forget where I put it. I am constantly forgetting where I put things. And yet God says, my salvation is kept for you in heaven. And I'm so thankful it is. But that salvation, according to the Bible, is so absolutely certain, so now, so already done, that God speaks of it as past tense. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, he says, those who have been justified have been glorified. And he says that in past tense. He doesn't say will be glorified. He says glorified, past tense, meaning this, that God is so absolutely certain that when you place your trust in Jesus Christ, that heaven is your eternal destiny, he speaks of it as past tense. God knows your destiny better than you do. And he wants you to put your eternal hope and trust in his promise. And God offers you not simply a qualitative life, but a quantitative life of No more war, no more sorrow, no more fear. He's offering you heaven through Jesus Christ. And that spiritual life can only be found in Jesus himself. So the sixth commandment reminds us that life is precious. That all life comes from God. Our physical life, our spiritual life, our eternal life comes from him. And that to unlawfully take somebody else's life literally is synonymous to murdering the very image of God. Now, most of you are thinking, this wasn't so bad. I was a little concerned about where you're going to go with this. But you see, we're not done. There's another form of murder that we have not talked about that is the true intent and least understood intent behind this commandment. One theologian called it murder of the heart. You see, the the intent of God behind the Ten Commandments was not merely outward conformity. So you can say, I've never killed anybody. God says, that's great. But God is not looking for mere outward conformity. He's looking for inward integrity as well. And Jesus said this best when he was talking about this very commandment in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you have heard the ancients were told. You shall not murder. He's quoting Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the sixth commandment. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to court. That's outward conformity. But then he says, the inward integrity that God is looking for. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The Sadducees and the Pharisees had mastered outward conformity. They hadn't killed anybody, so they were good to go. They were good with God. But Jesus is saying that is not the intent that God gave the Ten Commandments for. There was a deeper intent, a deeper awareness that they needed to have, not just outward conformity, but inward integrity to protect them from committing murder of the heart. Because you see, murder always, always begins in the heart. Jesus explained this in Mark chapter 7. Listen to what he says. For from within, 
Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile a man. In the fourth list, in the fourth in the symptomatic problems of the heart, Jesus lists is murder. And he's saying that murder begins in your heart. And that is what God holds you liable for. Not merely your actions, but your attitude toward others as well. So what is Jesus saying in this passage? He's saying, well, first of all, you've heard the ancients were told. The Pharisees had taken their traditions and they had placed them in a higher authority than God's word. And they denied the authority of God's word and applying to their hearts and their lives. And instead, they went with the authority of what the ancients said. And that was outward conformity to the law. As long as you had outward conformity, you're okay. He was saying, that's not enough. Now, Jesus is not coming along saying, you know, I'm going to do away with the law. Nor is he saying, I'm going to give you my own set of beliefs. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus came to complete what we could never do because he was the perfect man. Therefore, he was able to perfectly live out God's law. And therefore, he was the perfect sacrifice for you and for me on the cross who could die as our sin bearer on the cross. Only Jesus Christ could do that. And he fulfilled what the law and the prophets had promised in the Old Testament. He wasn't anything new. He was getting back, in fact, to the intent of what God intended in the Ten Commandments in the first place. You see, the religious leaders were only focused on the outside, not the inward. And since they had not murdered anybody outright in their minds, they thought they were fine. But Jesus is saying this, that murder always begins in your heart. It always begins in your heart. So the second question then is this. What kind of anger is Jesus talking about? Let me ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hand, but I'll raise mine. How many of you have been angry at somebody? I mean, so angry that you feel fangs growing. So angry that you feel your blood curdling. So angry that it is without any effort at all to start thinking about what you'd like to do with that anger to somebody. Jesus is making a very clear and sobering statement here. If it doesn't trouble you, it certainly troubles me because I have been angry. I have been enraged. So what is Jesus talking about here? First of all, to say simply you fool, Jesus does not mean that applies that now you're a murderer because even Jesus said to the Pharisees, even to his own disciples, you foolish. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, he says, oh, you foolish Galatians. So it's not the issue of being angry. That's not the issue here that he's talking about. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, we're to be angry and yet do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your sin. Not all anger is wrong. In fact, it is a wrong belief to say that as you're a Christian, you should never get angry. There's something wrong with you if you don't. You should get angry at the injustice that you see in the world. It should motivate you to a righteous anger, but never license you to an unrighteous anger. 
you should be angry. So what kind of anger then is Jesus talking about here? If I'm really angry with somebody and I'm just seething inside, what kind of checks and balances do I need to be working inside of me? The kind of anger that Jesus is talking about is a, a brooding bitterness, a deep, seething hatred for somebody that strikes out to hurt them emotionally, spiritually, and physically. It begins first in your heart, then it begins to develop in your thought process, then your words, and then your actions. That's called murder of the heart. You look for opportunities, you wait for opportunities when you can say something, when you can do something to hurt somebody that has murderous intent because you do not like them. Now let me ask you a question. Are you guilty of murder? Are you a bunch of murderers? I know that I have. I'd be less than honest to say that I'm not a murderer according to what Jesus says or the intent of what God said in his word. God was very clear that he intended the application of the Ten Commandments not simply to be outward conformity, but the heart itself. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 7, he says, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. Have you had hate that loathes, that wants to murder somebody? First John says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Are you a murderer? Are you guilty before God as a murderer? Have you ever done something intentionally, said something intentionally, contrived some plan to bring hurt into somebody's life because you were going to get revenge, murderous revenge? Now, maybe you didn't outright murder them, but the very intent behind your actions, your words, was in fact murder. If looks could kill are you guilty of murder? Maybe you don't see yourself as a murderer. Let me ask you, have you read any obituaries lately of someone who passed away and you found great pleasure in that? Sometimes even murderers themselves don't see themselves as murderers. During the 1930s, there was a gangster by the name of Two-Gun Crowley. Two-Gun Crowley was a, a murderer, to say least, he had, he had committed a string of brutal homicides, including cop killing. He was on America's most wanted list. He was finally cat, caught in a, in a fierce gun battle in his girlfriend's apartment. When the police searched him, they found a note inside of his clothing. It said this, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. He was incredibly deceived. His heart was rotting with murder, but he did not realize it. You see, the reality is this. Two-Gun two Crowley is not alone. We're all guilty of the same kind of self-deception. Jesus said, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be, shall be guilty. God is just as concerned with your actions as he is with your attitude, your heart. Now, I recognize as I'm talking to you today, you may be under the conviction and awareness that, yes, in fact, I'm a murderer. But let me ask you this. Are there, is there somebody in your life right now that you have such hate 
such vengeance, such loathing for that you would kill them or you would read their obituary with great pleasure if you were to see it. God says, if that's true of you right now, but you say, but you don't know what that person did to me. You don't know what they said to me. What they did was wrong. I'd say you're probably right. What they did is wrong. But God is not concerned about them. Not right now. He's concerned about you. And he's saying that when you have murder in your heart towards someone else, you have broken the sixth commandment. And that makes you a murderer. What are you going to do with that? God says the only way that you can have forgiveness, the only way that you can have freedom from that bitterness is to accept Jesus Christ's forgiveness in your own life, to invite that new spiritual life that only God can do by bringing His Holy Spirit into your life, transforming your life, making you a new creation. And He enables you to deal with the bitterness, the hatred, the pain in your life, and he brings healing as only the great physician can do in your life. There is hope. And the reason that Jesus Christ came into the world was so that we would have hope in this war-torn place of carnage and hopelessness. God brings us hope through Jesus Christ. And this morning, the only way we can find forgiveness for murder of the heart is through Jesus Christ. Right now, I'm going to ask you, will you pray with me? And if God is convicting you in your heart, and you know, you know that there is murder in your own heart, would you bring that before his throne of grace? Don't think that God doesn't already know it. That's why you're here. Because he knows it. And he wants to expose it. And he wants you to seek his forgiveness. He wants you to know the freedom that he can give through forgiveness. He wants you to know the freedom that he can give through healing the pain in your heart right now. Only Jesus Christ can bring that healing. Will you pray with me? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you pray, Lord Jesus? Thank you for being my sin-bearer on the cross for me. Lord, there is nothing you do not know about my life, inwardly and outwardly. Nothing is hidden from you. So right now, Lord, I confess to you my sin. I confess to you, Lord, that I am a fallen human being in need of your forgiveness. Lord, forgive me where I have murdered others in my own heart. And I pray for your healing, that not only would I choose to forgive them because you have forgiven me and you give me the power to forgive others, but Lord, that you'd bring healing from the pain, the injustice, that remains in my heart. That you remove that 
I would know the freedom and the joy that can only come from you. Right now, Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. And I ask, Lord, you have mercy on me. Forgive me my sins. Come into my life, I pray, Holy Spirit. And make me a new creation, transformed by you, the only true life giver. I pray these things in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. We'd like to stand and sing our final song is, I love you, Lord. lives be a sweet sound to the Lord Jesus in the days that he's given us as we look forward to the eternity being with him as Danny spoke about in the beginning of our time together. Don't you look forward to heaven where the sun will be the sun and never go down. Wouldn't that be great? We're going to take a a brief break. I want to invite you, if you're here today, I'd like to invite you downstairs. There's coffee. There's some goodies down there. But about 10 minutes from now, so at about 1140, I want to invite you to come back up here. Those of you that are interested in what is called the Culture Impact Team, Dan and Linda Putz will be here. They're going to share with you about what that is, and they're going to field questions for you. If you have not eaten lunch, I'd encourage you to grab something downstairs, bring it up here, grab your coffee, bring it up here, 